0: We're so thankful this morning that we each have been able to assemble and to gather our membership at Pippin, the visitors who have come our way. We're so thankful for each and every individual, and we trust that the worship service will be encouraging and uplifting and more important than anything else, magnifying under the cause and name of our Heavenly Father. It is the case that we concluded a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning, a series of some seven weeks of lessons dealing with the messages or the words spoken by our Lord while upon the cross. As we looked at all seven of those, we, of course, appreciated a depth a profoundness attached to what our Lord spoke on that occasion, though in such a dire circumstance He was. This morning, not in a series attached to that subject, but a lesson entitled, The Best Book, Almost Unknown. I'd invite you to think with me for the next few moments this morning about a book. A book that, although it's without doubt the finest, richest, most enthralling, and most scintillating book ever written, it's almost unknown, sadly, and at least in the mind of so very many, wholly unappreciated. As we give some thought for the next few moments to that, perhaps these introductory remarks would set us on our course of consideration. That book to which I refer is no doubt the one you've already appreciated, it's the Holy Text of the Bible that book that perhaps you're holding in your lap, that book that you may have a number of copies in one form or another at your house or other place of abode, you and I recognize how high and how respected the Bible, at least in the mind of some, is. And in fact, in the mind of very many others, it also occupies a very special place. We recognize you and I claim it has all the answers to the greatest questions of life in it. That means it's far better than any book used at any David Lipscomb or Tennessee Tech classroom. It's by far and away far better than any text of self help character reference book, if you please. But yet, as we give that thought to the book, isn't it also sad that although many might feel that way, they don't seem to know too much about it? They seem to have a knowledge that's exceedingly lacking, perhaps even non existent, relative to so many of the features and aspects of that holy book. It is with that in mind that I would invite you to look at the very last statement on that slide that takes us back to the title of the lesson, The Best Book, Almost Unknown. Let's think about the Word of God for a few moments this morning, reminding ourselves about the characteristics of it, appreciating it one more time, the salient features of what makes it so special, and then finally, to appreciate as we come near the midpoint and ladder of the lesson, some very interesting and very personal aspects of this very subject. First of all, the Holy Bible. It seemed entirely fitting to remind ourselves of some of what this book claims about itself. Not what men think about it, not what others have asserted relative to it, not what may be declared concerning it, but what it says about itself. You'll notice that here are just a few thoughts. First of all, this book makes the presentation that it is the Word of God. It's not that a man has asserted it relative to the Bible. Didn't David say in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. The Word of God, then, as it was set forth and declared from the very lips of David. That text in 2 Samuel 23, 2, perhaps harkens us to the famous words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. The congregation in Thessalonica. It was to them that Paul wrote with such majesty and power for the which calls also, thank we God, without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God which you heard of us, you've received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. What a high commendation is paid to those in Thessalonica. When they heard Paul preach and those companions with him, they didn't esteem it as men's words. They viewed it as the very word of God and for that Paul highly complimented them. Those two passages bring us to maybe the most famous of all. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works." The perfection of the Word of God, in the sense that you and I appreciate from that passage, it's noteworthy for its correction, its instruction in righteousness... No wonder all of those things bring us to appreciate that this Bible, that you and I understand, as what's before us is also a book of truth. Jesus made that statement, didn't He, in John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And didn't the Lord also say, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free? John eight thirty two. The truth highlighted and proclaimed in the word of God helps us see that it's that same truth that can present the message of salvation. James 1.18 says, Of a truth I perceive as it relates to the fact that in that Word of God is the understanding of the fact that in it it's able to save us, the soul-saving message of the Word of God. No wonder then we're admonished to hear it and to obey it. Look at some of these passages in passing. Wasn't it Jeremiah who in thunderous tones said, "O oh Earth, Earth, Earth." Hear the word of the Lord? Jeremiah 22:29. And exactly one chapter later in Jeremiah 23:29 he said, "Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? God's word is much then like that marvelous anvil that's worn out so many hammers. You'll notice in Luke 11:28, One of those Beatitudes in the book of Luke, Jesus Himself said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the Word of God and keep it. What a wonderful Beatitude, isn't it? To hear the Word of God and thus also to keep it. Paul wrote in Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, On that occasion, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You and I recognize the simplicity and yet the power of that passage. To call on the name of the Lord and the salvation it generates, is it any wonder that in the closing book of the Bible, Revelation 1-3, there's a final pronouncement of blessing upon those who hear the words of this prophecy, who read it and who keep it. Those blessings perhaps lead us to the next thought. You would think in light of these things we've studied so far, how that all the answers to life's greatest questions are in it, how that all the features and aspects of this life and beyond are set forth within it, one might think that the Bible would be so incredibly respected, highly revered, but yet you'll notice some passages like these. In Jeremiah 15 verse 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah did appreciate the word, didn't he? So much so that he had advised himself, he longed and yearned to have it as a part of him. Isn't that fact highlighted twice in the Bible? Both in Ezekiel and in Revelation in which Ezekiel on the one hand, John on the other were told to take this little book and thoroughly digest it, to eat it up and to make it a part of you. No wonder in light of that, Psalm 119 verses 15 and 16 admonish us all in this way. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in my statutes. I will not forget thy word. Can you and I make that statement with wholeheartedness? I will never forget thy word. That can only be accomplished when we involve ourselves with it. When we give attention to its reading and diligence with respect to involving ourselves in what it proclaims. Isn't it is also true that those next verses read like this Psalm 119, verse 140 Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 105 Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. All of those ideas are with respect, of course, to that Bible, that word of God that you and I appreciate so well. However, the plot will thicken rather notably. Because you'll also notice not only is this book, this Bible, such that it contains those messages for a happy life here, but it's the only message for life hereafter. What was it Jesus said in John twelve forty eight? As He spoke about the earnestness, and as He spoke about the simplicity, and yet the line of greatness with respect to this book, He said, that to those who reject Him and His Word... This book is the one that will judge them. This book is the one that will judge them. I would invite you to think in light of those things about the bottom points on that slide. We know that there are so many who highly esteem this book. The, The denominational world, in fact, by and large, will lift high the thought of the Bible, encouraging its study, encouraging giving diligence to it. But yet, sadly, it's true that there seems to be in our land a persistent and worsening ignorance of the Bible. With each passing generation, with each passing consideration in time, it seems as if there's less and less knowledge of the Word of God. Perhaps in your own mind you can compare, what were things like say 30 or 40 years ago from what you remember? Was there at least a greater general knowledge of the Bible? Was there more of a givenness to a respect to, to the nature of the Word of God? As you well know, the nature of that Bible brings us to some additional thoughts as well. And I've entitled this particular slide, Bible Ignorance. Several years ago, I ran across an article, and it really captured my attention. I wanted to share with you some of the salient thoughts from that article. It was an article written by a gentleman from Wheaton College, which is a small interdenominational college in Massachusetts. Wheaton is well known for having a very strong evangelical base. And by that I mean this, they attract students who come from homes for which you would think the Bible would have been highly respected. They come from homes of people who took their kids to some kind of church service. These kids participated in Bible camps and other kinds of church-related activities. Now please note, I'm not saying it's Church of Christ. Wheaton is not a Church of Christ school, and they wouldn't claim it. But it is a school in which, by and large, the clientele are students who you would think would have a high appreciation of and a rather sufficient working knowledge in some ways of the statements of the Bible. But yet I've listed on that slide one of the verbatim comments that came out of a survey done by one of the professors at Wheaton College. Let me fill you in with a little background. The incoming freshman class at Wheaton is given a a quiz or at least a survey. And each student fills it out and it's just some questions about the Bible. It's not used to determine a grade. It's not used in any way to either positively or negatively impact. It's just for survey purposes. And the survey is in fact done by one of the, the theology professors there at the college Gary Burge, as I recall, is his name. And these are just some of the results of the survey that he has noted over the course of his years of of giving it. I'd like to read that. If you'd like to read along as I read it, that's certainly fine. This is what Dr. Burge said. One-third of the freshmen could not put the following in chronological order. Christ, Abraham, Pentecost, and the Old Testament prophets... Half could not sequence these events. Isaac's birth, Judah's exile, Moses in Egypt, and Saul's death. Incredibly, one-third could not identify Matthew as an apostle from a list of New Testament names. When asked to locate the biblical books supplying a given story, one-third could not find Paul's travels in the book of Acts. Half did not know that the Christmas story was in Matthew or that the Passover story was in Exodus. You'll notice it's not as if many of the questions were extremely involved. It's just simple ones about where some major overwhelming events might well be located. And a substantial fraction of those polled surveyed could not tell what the answer correctly was. Beyond that, some more comments. Dr. Burge became intrigued, so if the general state of knowledge of incoming freshmen seems to be slipping, he wondered, suppose I give this particular quiz or this particular set of questions to some youth at various congregations locally. Would they fare any better? Would their knowledge be perhaps deeper? would they score better on the quiz? Here's the result. Fully 80% could not place Moses, Adam, David, Solomon, and Abraham in chronological order. Only 15% could place in order the major events of Jesus and Paul's lives. And only 33% could find the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. A whopping 80% did not know where to find the Lord's Prayer. Keep in mind, now that particular set of ideas was with respect to polling again youth, teenagers, if you will, at some local places of worship there in the Massachusetts area. At this point, you can begin to see the conclusions that he wrote at the bottom. I found this kind of frightening. His conclusion was that current American culture is post biblical. That is to say, it's past the Bible. It doesn't rely on the Bible anymore. Our culture, our youth, give their attention and the very substance and meaning and profusion of life to something other than this book. Their knowledge of it is passing at best. By and large, they're ignorant of the major features and the things found in the Word of God. Post-biblical... I think each of us would be frightened to think, are we moving into an era of time in which America is post-biblical, that this book is obsolete, it's oblivious, it's old-fashioned and un- in- insignificant? There clearly are many who feel that way. As you give thought to the nature of this kind of assessment, it's not very encouraging, is it? I thought that you might be interested to look at some of the questions that he asked them on these, on these questionnaires. What are some of these questions that they couldn't answer very well? Would you and I do any better? Would you and I be able with confidence to answer these questions and do far better than what they did? Let's look at some of them and see. Let me say that there will in total be 25 of these questions. Roughly 22 of them are directly off his questionnaire. I submitted three extra, so I won't claim they were all due to him. But here are some questions identically asked in this questionnaire. I won't ask for us to give a show of hands, but I would just ask you and I to think about our ability to answer with confidence these questions. First of all, which one of these in the list is not a book in the Bible? A. Isaiah B. Jude C. Hezekiah D. Amos E. The Song of Solomon would you and I be able to appreciate the fact that of that list, Hezekiah is not a book in the Bible? Question two Who was Israel's first king? Was it A. Saul, B. Solomon, C. David, D. Samuel, or E. Moses? Again, it comes from the Old Testament, but would you and I, with confidence, be able to, with clarity, say A. Saul was the first king of ancient Israel? Question C or question 3, Sarah and Abraham had a son in their old age and named him Laughter. What was his real name? Perhaps to your mind and mine come scenes of recollection about that word Laughter, but our choices A, Samuel, B, Moses, C, Isaac, D, Jacob, or E, Ishmael. Again, a significant event for the future events through the world, even to this point in time. Would you and I be able to confidently say that C. Isaac was the son of promise? Question four. Which of the following is not an Old Testament prophet? Our choices, A. Elisha, B. Elijah, C. Aaron, D. Isaiah, or E. Joel. Now remember, these were the questions that this gentleman asked. Would we fare better than those students? Would we be able to easily assert the fact that though Aaron was a high priest, he was not a prophet? correct answer was C. What about the next set of questions? Question number five. This one asks of us the following. First, place these events in their biblical order. A, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. B, the creation. C, the fall. And notice that's capital F. D, the exodus led by Moses. And finally, E, the flood of Noah. Could we chronologically place those as they unfold in the Word of God? With a bit of thought we would be able to appreciate the fact that the creation, obviously, is first, B. And then beyond that, we come to C and E, and then D and A. Placing them, again, in the order in which they appear in the Word of God. Question 6, place the following characters in their biblical order. And by that, again, he means the order in which they occur in the Bible. A, Moses. B, Adam. C, David. D. Solomon and E. Abraham. I suppose we would each readily appreciate the occurrence of Adam as the first one. He was the first man, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. But beyond that, we have E, A, C, and D. One by one, you can begin to get a sense of the kinds of questions that were asked. But let's look at the next one. Question 7, which of the following books is from the New Testament? Our choices, A, Judges, B, Malachi, C, Deuteronomy, D, Hebrews, or E, Isaiah. Four of them are from the Old Testament. One is from the New. Which is it? Hebrews is the New Testament book, isn't it? So D was our correct answer. Question 8, who wrote the book of Philemon? Was it A, Philemon, B, Paul, C, Peter, D, Onesimus, or E, John? And, of course, we would readily appreciate that Paul B. wrote the book of Philemon, didn't he? Through these eight questions, how are you and I doing? Question nine. Which one of the following was among Jesus' twelve apostles? A. Paul, B. Matthew, C. Luke, D. Timothy, or E. Silas? Only one of them was one of the original twelve apostles, and you and I would readily appreciate that Matthew was one of them, wasn't he? B. Question 10. Whom did Pontius Pilate release during Jesus' trial? Was it A. Barnabas, B. Peter, C. Silas, D. Barabbas, or E. Paul? And again, in our study of those words spoken by Jesus on the cross, we probably would readily appreciate that Barabbas D was the correct answer on that one. Question 11. How many temptations did Jesus face in the wilderness? A1, B2, C3, D4, or E5? That's recorded twice in the New Testament, isn't it? In Matthew 4 as well as in Luke chapter 4, and each time there was three, wasn't there? Question 12, how many books are there in the Old Testament? Is it A. 27, B. 66, C. 39, D. 12, or E. 47? Well, as you now know, the Old Testament has some 39 books, and so our answer is C, isn't it? By this point, you can see the nature again of these questions. Let's look at a few more of them. Question 13. Place the following events in their biblical order. A. The Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost. B. John has a vision on the Isle of Patmos. C. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. D. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark are sent out on a mission with the church. E. Peter denies that he knows Jesus. Would we, of course, quickly identify that C-E-A-D-B is the correct order in terms of the order in which they occur in the books of the New Testament? Question number 14, place the following events in their biblical order. A, Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. B, Mary's song. C, Nicodemus' conver- conversation about rebirth. D, Peter's denial of Jesus. Four choices this time. Our order B, C, D, and A. Question 15 Where would you find the Ten Commandments? Is it A, the book of Isaiah? B, the book of Exodus? C, the book of Genesis? D, the book of Numbers? Or E, the book of Matthew? Well, again, we quickly identify the Ten Commandments are first found in Exodus. B, it's not the only book in which they're found, but they are found in the book of Exodus. Having looked at 15 of these questions, you can get a sense then of what he was saying when, again, 80% would miss a certain question or 50% or a full high percentage. Before us next is question 16. Where would you find the first Passover? Is that A, the book of Genesis, B, the book of Numbers, C, the book of 1 Samuel, D, the book of Exodus, or E, the book of 2 Kings? Our studies on Sunday morning have, of course, detailed that finding in the, book of, in the book of Exodus, hasn't it? Question 17, where would you find this phrase, Create in me a clean heart, O God? Is that found in the book of Proverbs? Is it found in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Psalms, the book of Deuteronomy, or the book of Luke? That's found in Psalm 51, isn't it? So that answer, of course, was C. Question 18, where would you find the Lord's Prayer? You'll notice a moment ago, one of the statements made was a high percentage, wasn't able to detail where that was. Where would you find the Lord's Prayer A, the book of Matthew, B, the book of Acts, C, the book of Ephesians, D, the book of Malachi, or E, the book of Isaiah? That's in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, isn't it? Their correct answer was A. Question number 19, again, a question about where would we find something. In this case, where would you find the phrase, in the beginning was the Word? That's, of course, the opening pronouncement of one of the New Testament books, but here are our choices. The book of Acts, the book of Isaiah, the book of John, the book of Leviticus, or the book of Romans. That's in the book of John, isn't it? One of the opening statements in that fourth gospel account. Question number 20. Elizabeth and Zechariah were the parents of which of the following? A. Jesus, B. Samuel, C. Paul, D. Timothy, or E. John the Baptist? They were the parents of John the Baptist, weren't they? The correct answer was E. Question 21. Jesus was crucified during which of these? A. Passover. B, Hanukkah. C, Tabernacles. D, Sabbath. Or E, Purim. We do, of course, appreciate the occurrence and some interest about those, but there is one clear answer from the Old and New Testament alike. Our Lord was crucified during the Passover season, What? not He? A. Question 22, who was the successor to Moses? A, David. B, Elijah. C, Aaron. D, Jesus. Or E, Joshua. The successor to Moses was Joshua, was it? The leader of the people of Israel, correct answer, E. One by one, as those questions have been asked of each of us, why don't we add a few more to, again, the consideration of them. List the Scripture references for the plan of salvation. Would you and I be able to do that? to provide book, chapter, and verse for someone that might ask of us. So how, how do I become saved? What should I do to be pleasing unto God? What need I do to become a member of the church purchased with the blood of Christ? Could, could you and I provide for them that information? We know I haven't listed there the fullness of, of those answers, but you and I know that would quickly speak to per- passages like... The necessity of belief in Romans 10, verse 14, or perhaps John 8, verse 24. We would speak to the importance of repentance as set forth in Acts 2.38, as set forth in Luke 13, 3, for example. Would we be quick to mention the need for confession in 1 John 4:12, as well as, for instance, in Matthew 10, 32 and following? Would we be quick then to mention baptism as commanded by Jesus in Mark 16:16? 16, 16, as commanded by others such as Peter in 1 Peter 3.21. Those kinds of passages would be so meaningful and so important as explaining the answer to a question like that one. What about this question? List of Scripture references for what elements comprise acceptable worship unto God. We know well that worship must be in spirit and in truth, John 4.24, and so that means some things are according to truth and some things are not. Could you and I with confidence then make reference to passages that speak to singing, observing of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, that matter of singing, Colossians 3.16? Perhaps some considerations touching the subject of the opportunity to, to expound the Word of God, preaching in Acts 20 verse 7. Could we also then make note of the contribution as commanded in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2? As you think about those elements in worship, the only one left is prayer. To that we might rush to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and speak to the needfulness and importance of prayer in worship. It may be in light of all those, we come to question 25. So this church of which you speak... I gather it's important. I gather there's a significance to it. So how must it be organized? Is that left to the human family? Could you and I point to some passages suggestive of the headship of Jesus? Colossians 1.18. Suggestive of the fact that in local congregations, each one is autonomous and there is only elders and deacons in each one. Philippians 1.1. When we think then about the nature of questions like all of these, they are somewhat suggestive of each of us asking ourselves, how did you do and how did I do? Our interest is to be thoroughly acquainted with this book, isn't it? For it is this book that shall serve as our judge. As the books are open in Revelation 20, beginning in verse number 11, we know that it is the sacred word of God that shall serve as the standard by which you and I in this present age are judged. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day, John 12, verse 48. The nature of that judgment then brings us to this. We see records in the New Testament of those who seemingly searched those Scriptures, and they did so with excitement, with eagerness, and with diligence. What about those mentioned in Acts 17? Verse 11 of that chapter paints for us a dramatic picture. Earlier in the lesson this morning, we noted the high commendation of the church in Thessalonica. Namely, remember that they treated the Word of God as it was the Word of God. But now notice about the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. They had a disposition of mind to rest upon that book, and they searched it with diligence. Isn't it true that in 2 Timothy 2, 15, all of us are admonished, "Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As we then seek to rightly divide it, isn't it still the case that that has been the the plague, the bane, if you will, of centuries of difficulty? Folks have lifted high this, but they've misinterpreted, and hence came into being all kinds of religious organizations unknown to God. And not only that, we notice it sprang from an ignorance in one way or another of the dutifulness of the Word of God. As you come near the bottom of that slide, there is a passage in Philippians 4 that's always a very positive, encouraging passage. A passage that helps appreciate in your mind and mind the following, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It's quite likely the truth that you and I won't be able to memorize all 31,102 verses of this book. But God doesn't demand that of us to go to heaven. He does demand that we have a working knowledge of it. He does demand that we be able, of course, to appreciate the right division of it. And you'll notice that in some instances those questions hinged critically on a right division. You and I know, based on some chronological matters, for instance, there we couldn't go to John the Baptist to learn how the church is organized. He died long before the church was established. But it's features like that, if one failed in understanding it, that might lead you to turn to the wrong places and go to the wrong books, trying to find answers to certain things. Those youth at Wheaton College, I hope, have challenged each of us that though we may not be students at that university, we ought to strive to be working students of the Word of God. You'll notice, perhaps in one last observation as you come to the conclusion, you can perhaps see why I chose the title that I did. I know that's by and large not true of the Pippin Church of Christ, but I chose that title because it is frightening, isn't it? What's going to happen if in 50 years the knowledge of the Bible is proportionately less then than it is now? compared to 50 years ago. America will almost have no association to the Bible anymore, if that's true. Shockingly, you and I can start to turn that tide, or at least make sure in our own lives that that's not the case. Maybe as the new year is shortly to be upon us, if it be the blessing of God, maybe you and I can revisit again the significance and importance of the Bible, making sure that we are involved in those places like Bible studies and worship where it's honored, respected, and studied. And also that you and I appreciate the nature of its study to incorporate it into our life. Today, the best book, almost unknown. May you and I never let it be so in our lives. And may we lift high the banner of respect for that Word of God. It is with that we come back to the lesson text that Brother Vestal read in our hearing earlier. In Psalm 119, verse number 97, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Do you and I then meditate upon it and find it enjoyable as we give attention to it? I hope we each have been reminded that there are even those in the world that understand biblical ignorance seems to be increasing. That's a tragedy and it's a shame and it doesn't bode well for our country. Because in this book we find righteousness exalted a the nation, but sin is of reproach to any people. Proverbs 14, 34. This very morning, as you have thought about those questions, the nature of your life as a Christian, or maybe you haven't become a Christian yet, don't wait any longer. This third Sunday in December is the finest day there could be for you to obey the gospel. Jesus, in that New Testament record gave what must be done in order to become a member of the body of Christ. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His grand name as the Messiah, the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, why not make this a celebratory day? If you become a member of the church at one time, but today you aren't faithful... You know that things have been done and said, others know about it, and you have in fact brought reproach on the very life you once had led. Why not come back today to your first love, Revelation 2.5, and let us pray with you and for you just like was done for Simon in Acts the eighth chapter. If today we could be of help to you, let the Bible be your guide through life, and it will sustain you in death, and it will bless you in eternity. And if we can help you today, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?